Good morning, everyone. Uh, You all are a rowdy bunch this morning. That's great. Good to see you all. Glad that we could be together to worship. There's an expression that says that the best views come after the hardest climbs. We're all mountain people here or wannabe mountain people, right? We know what this means. After some of life's most difficult struggles and challenges, there's often a reward at the end of it. I don't know who said this. As far as I'm concerned, it's anonymous. And if you don't mind, I'm going to abuse it a little bit this morning as we get started this morning. When we think about this idea that we launch off into some expedition or some challenge that we have in front of us, that there is often something that's a payoff on the other side of it. It could be a literal climb, but it could also be something different in life, like an academic program that we choose. It's really hard, but we know it will set us up well for a career, the career that we want. We might choose a budget that's really restrictive and and hard for us to comply with, but we know that if we will do that, if we'll have the discipline, that along the way it'll pay off in the end. These are the kinds of things that can be really difficult, but they come with a great view at the end of it. Well, I'd like to submit to you this morning that these are not, in fact, the kind of hardest climbs that we deal with in life. The hardest climbs are those that we never chose in the first place. They chose us. We find ourselves in a financial situation that we don't know how to get out of. We're not even sure how we got into it. All we know is that we're in a great struggle. We might find ourselves with a health problem that we could have never anticipated, and now we don't know what to do about it. We might find ourselves with some relational turmoil that's really just crushing our spirits and we don't know if there's a way out. These are the kinds of things where it feels like we're on a hard climb but we don't know where the trail's leading if there even is a top or an end to it. These are the things that are great struggles. And in the language of James, he calls them one thing. He calls them trials. Now we are in the third week now out of the book of James. And we've seen the last two weeks a couple things. First of all, James says that when we're facing trials, that we should consider or count it all joy. And there are various trials that we might face in life. We can meet all kinds of things that we've just talked about or things that we haven't talked about that you're walking into the room with this morning, though, because you're in the middle of it. James calls us to a perspective here. Why? Because that perspective is that there's a long view to take here. And the long view is that God can use those trials to help help our faith grow stronger and persevere. And as it does, it can lead to this great outcome, the great view of being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But in order to have that perspective or that change in attitude, we need one thing. And this is the one thing that will equip us for the struggles of life, for the trials we face. And it's called wisdom. If any of us lacks it, we can ask God and he will give it to us. It turns out, to manipulate that opening expression, that wisdom is what gives us the best view of our hardest climbs. Oftentimes in life, when we're in the middle of a trial, we want to pray for wisdom so that we can get out of it. But instead, James is calling us to adopt a certain perspective that will help us endure it to lead us through, that will lead us to being, as he said, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this morning, we're going to look and see how wisdom can be applied to our life in different areas. 
James is going to start off by addressing one of the great challenges that was common in his day. It was a world where over 90% of the population was very, very poor. A small fraction had most of the resources and wealth and status in life. So he's going to dive right into that very subject that he was facing in his day. And along the way, I think we have something that we can learn for our own day as well. This is what James says, starting in verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The lowly, these are people who don't have material resources, but even more than that, they have no status in life. These are the people who are invisible, the people who are on the margins of society, the people who no one notices, and to the people who do matter, these people don't matter. On the flip side, the rich, these are the people who when they walk into a room, everybody's attention is fixated on them. When they speak, people stop talking and they listen to hear what they have to say. These are the people with a lot of money, a lot of resources. They're the movers and the shakers of society. So to the lowly, James says this, the lowly should boast or take pride in his exaltation. Incidentally, this is a Mark It Up series, so if you have a pen, if you have one of these journals here, we encourage you to mark it up right in your journal, and you'll see some marks that I have on the screen this morning that might encourage you to do something in your own. So to the lowly, he says that the lowly brother, this is a believer, this is not an instruction just for people who are on the... It's a forward-looking perspective. I said it earlier that wisdom takes the long view in life. In in this case, the lowly person, the person with no status, should look out and see that there is a day coming when the Lord will give us great exaltation. It's a future hope, but it's a present hope too in in the sense that as this person looks off into the future, to the horizon, they can see that there's great hope in their present day struggles that they're facing. To the rich, though... James has a common thing that he says, or a similar thing, rather. He says that the rich brother should boast in his humiliation, looking off into the future. Now, this is confusing, right? What does that mean to boast in humiliation? Some people think James is just being really sharply sarcastic here. James will have some really strong words towards the rich later on in the book. But the way this is written leads me to believe that James has a rich brother in mind here. But then how do we make sense of this? You know, one thing that we could notice right off the bat is that since James is instructing the rich brother, that should imply something to us. That having a lot of status and having a lot of wealth in life does not make you wise, James is calling him to wisdom, though, by adopting this perspective. And if we step back and look at all of Scripture, we would see that this isn't so out of step with the character of all of Scripture. Jeremiah is one place we could turn to that would help us see what James might be, might be alluding to. Jeremiah says this in chapter 9, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Interestingly, even here at the start, the wise person, what James is calling us to be, is not worth boasting in. Wisdom is not the end goal, but it's the means to the end goal of being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But here, the rich person should not even boast in those riches. But what should we boast in? Let him who boasts, boasts in this, 
that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is the perspective of wisdom, that whether you are lowly or whether you are rich, you would have a common boast in life, that you boast that you know, that you understand the Lord. And why is that the case? Well, James, we go back to the passage, is going to show us through this really colorful language of what's in store for the rich. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. If you're wondering what this might look like, if you have a journal... That's what's depicted on the cover of these journals. The sun is rising. The flowers are fading. It's a common motif in scripture that's used over and over. If you have a lot of stuff in this life, you have a lot of stuff that you can take pride in and put your identity in and boast in. And all of those things are going to be stripped away It's interesting how the lowly person and thinking about the future exaltation requires all kinds of faith. It requires no faith, though, to think about the rich being stripped from or separated from all of the status and all of the wealth that they have. We should take take pride and boast in the Lord who we know rather than the stuff that we have. Other passages we could look to are like 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18, which I'll read to you here. It's not on the screen. Paul instructs Timothy... This way, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Your life is not in the stuff that you have but our lives is in the Savior who we know. Another way you might look at this too is from the words of Jesus when he's instructing his disciples on what the kingdom of heaven is like in Matthew 13. He says it's like treasure that's been buried or that's found and discovered in a field and this man finds it and he takes it and he buries it and then he goes and he sells everything that he has in his joy so that he can buy that field. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like with us. If we have riches, and many of us in this room, I could even say, I don't have time to defend this, so I probably shouldn't say it, but all of us in this room are rich by a global standard. I don't know that. We have a lot of differences between us in the room. I know that. But if we compare ourselves to the rest of the world, we are rich. The struggle we face is to not put our identity and our hope and our significance In those things. But let us who boast, boast in the Lord that we understand and know. So James, right off the bat, is giving us a perspective with wisdom related to our status. That it's wrapped up in our identity in the Lord, not in the stuff that we have. James is going to move on, though, to refocus our attention more directly on the struggles in verse 12. And this is what he says there. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is very similar to what James said earlier in verse 2. Here is the word blessed. 
This is an actual kind of a formula in wisdom literature that says this is the good life. This is the person who God favors. It's just ironic that this follows. But if you think of the Beatitudes that Jesus also expressed, blessed are the, the meek, blessed are those who mourn. Those are expressions, too, that are surprising to us. But James says that the one who remains steadfast will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is the blessed life. This is what it looks like. And this is the perspective of wisdom. But if we lack this kind of wisdom, we risk falling into a very different problem. So let's keep reading. James says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For not, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Some translations say here, instead of the word tempted, let no one say when he is tested, I am being tempted by God. The word test and tempt are the same word in the original language, but James is clearly turning a corner here where he's saying that a test can turn into a temptation. A test is neutral. It's a struggle that we face. But a temptation, on the other hand, is an enticement to sin. It's an enticement to do something contrary to God's will. And when you're in that place, what do you want to do other than blame somebody else? But James is saying, don't blame God. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Maybe in your mind as you hear James's words, you're thinking about, what about Jesus? Jesus is fully God, yet Jesus was clearly tempted. We have the temptations in the wilderness that are recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But in addition to that, we also have this beautiful verse out of Hebrews chapter 4 that says this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Well, we hold when we think of Jesus that Jesus is fully God, but Jesus is also fully human. And in his humanity, Jesus faced temptation, yet without sin. So Jesus is a great hope for us because he's faced everything that we might face, yet without sin. That's why he's our perfect savior. But back to the text now, when we think about this whole expression of God cannot be tempted by evil, then we might want to know who can we blame it on? Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Yesterday, I texted Pastor Tom, because he's a fisherman, and I said, can I borrow a fishing lure from you, if you have one? I need it for the sermon. He said, sure, you can use it if you have a sermon to go with it. I said, that's why you have an illustration, so you don't have to have a sermon, but, right? Look at how beautiful this specimen is. Look at these. So colorful, so sleek, so attractive. James is using the language of of fishing or of trapping an animal. I mean, who wouldn't want this beautiful thing? (laughs) And of course, there's this hook. Oh, there's one here too on the other side of it. These things could do some damage. 
Temptation is like this. It shows us this part, but it does not show us the hook at the end of it. James changes the metaphor or the imagery, though, and he moves away from fishing to giving birth. And he says this. He says, in this desire, this misplaced or fallen desire, it conceives and it has a child. And the child's name is sin. And then sin grows up. And sin has its own child. And it leads to death. We might just think about the, but it only leads to slavery. Temptation can promise us satisfaction, but temptation only leads us to emptiness. Temptation can also promise us life, but we've seen in the text that in fact it leads to death. That's what it delivers. I came across uh, an illustration. It's kind of painful to even read, in fact. But it's an illustration that a great pastor, preacher, Chuck Swindoll, shared with a group of future pastors who he was addressing. And he was trying to bring home this point of how when temptation strikes, we just think about the thing that's desirous. We don't think about the hook, the consequence. So he's speaking to a room full of pastors, so this doesn't directly apply to most of us in this room, but I think you'll get the picture from what he says. He says this, um, envision yourself calling together your elders, sitting in their midst, telling them that you have betrayed their trust, see their sunken faces and feel their broken hearts. Listen to them, consider how they'll tell the church And imagine the congregation's confusion and how it will affect those who've heard you say so often that Jesus is better than anything else. Imagine how the name of Christ will be mocked in your community and beyond. Then I want you to picture walking out to your car and getting in. Drive down the road near your home and circle your neighborhood a few times. Picture the place where you walk the dog with your children in the evenings. Now pull into the driveway, walk up to the door of your home. Hear their scampering feet of your children. They're running up to you and putting their arms around your legs saying, Daddy's home. See the way they love and trust you. Drink that in deeply. Now tell them to go outside and play because you, talk, you need to talk to mommy about something. Let, lead her by the hand to your bedroom. Ask her to have a seat. Feel your heart scamper in the lump Form in your throat. See her eyes ask you what's wrong, then watch her weep and tell her you've been unfaithful. Hear her wail. See her sob. Feel her hit, feel her hit your chest and fall to her knees in despair. Imagine the phone call to her parents and to yours. Hear the silence on the phone as they take in what you've told them. Imagine the day you gather your children and sit down to explain why mommy and daddy are going to spend some time away from each other. And the home that you love, you're going to have to sell that. See yourself taking down those smiling pictures from the wall and taping them up in the moving boxes, unsure if you'll ever open them up again. Do you see it? Sin doesn't tell you about those days, does it? 
Sin never tells you about the hook. Sin only tells you about the enticement, the thing that looks so great, the thing that you can have that's so available. It's so present, and all you have to do is just taste it. But sin never tells you the truth because sin is a liar. Temptation is a liar. It's a deception, just like a lure. That is what temptation does in our hearts. Temptation always takes, and God, though, always gives. And this is what helps us in the face of temptation to remember the true character and nature of our God. And that's exactly where James goes next. He starts off with this. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do you hear the love in James's voice for these people? James loves them desperately, and he wants them to see the true character and nature of God. Do not be deceived into thinking God is anything other than what he's about to say here. He says this, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Let's look at these statements that James puts in front of us. He calls God the Father. God is a loving Father who cares for us, who protects us, who's concerned for us, who watches over us. This is who our God is. But he's not only that. He's also the father of lights. This points to the fact that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. The one who made the sun, the moon, and the stars. Who sets them in motion. Who holds them in place. This is the sovereign God of the universe. And with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. He is constant. We just prayed about our turbulent unstable world. And in such a world, God is constant. God is the one who is watching over and we have no change with him. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We saw that in our last series in the book of Hebrews. This is our God whom we serve. Let's remember the words of Jeremiah chapter 9 where it says that let the one who boasts, boast in this, that we understand and know our God. That's what we boast in. That's who we boast in, to be more accurate. That we would understand and know him. And as we keep this accurate view of God in front of us, that is a guard against temptation. That protects us and it shields us because temptation always comes with the distortion of God's character. Either God won't mind or God is holding out on you. No, no, no. James is saying that he is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And as if that's not enough, God also has this incredible purpose for our lives. He says this, of his own will, God's purpose, God's plan here, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That by the gospel, that's what the word of truth is pointing to, God has brought us forth. Remember how sin brings forth death. But God brought us forth by his own will, by the word of truth, the gospel message that reveals to us who Jesus is. That's the power of God for salvation of all who believe that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
The first fruits is a loaded term. These were the first of the crops or the first of the wine that were set apart from the rest. They were holy for God's special purposes. If you remember the Genesis account, when God creates the good creation, he creates humanity with his image, special, set apart from the rest of creation. Here we see a renewal of that here from the mouth of James, that of God's own will, he brought us forth by the gospel that we should be this kind of set-apart people for his purposes. What a gift. I came across a story of a man named Dave Sullivan. Dave is a man who was suffering from heart failure. He was on the transplant list, but as you can imagine, being on the transplant list for a heart means that you're on a long list and you don't know how that's going to turn out. Dave had a device implanted into his chest to keep him alive, to try to extend his life as long as possible. Then one day in the early summer of 2019, he and his wife received a phone call from the doctors. They thought they had a match. A match, I'm not a doctor, but a match means that you have the right blood type, that the heart is the right shape and size to fit inside of the chest. Dave underwent the procedure, the delicate and complicated transplant, and six weeks later, he was able to walk out of the hospital and return home. That began a lengthy process for him and his wife, though, to try to make contact with the donor's family. They had discovered that this was a young man who had died tragically in a snowboarding accident. They were able to make contact with this family eventually, with the parents, the mom and the dad. And then they had the morning of the meeting where they wanted to meet this family. Understandably, Dave was a little bit on edge. And in his own words, Dave said this, I don't know why I'm nervous. I don't think I should be, but I just don't want them to be disappointed. Then he said this, sometimes I feel like I wasn't worthy of the gift. There's something about that mindset. Wanting to live a life that's worthy of the gift. We have been given a tremendous gift from the Father of lights. The giver of every good and perfect gift. But there's nothing greater than the gift of his gospel message that calls us to be a kind of first fruits of his creation that we saw in verse 18. This is the gift that we have been given. And the way we live a life that is worthy of that gift is to live a life informed by God's wisdom. That we would have a life that shows us through wisdom what it looks like in our status that we have in life. What it looks like as we face the struggles of life and reveals to us who our Savior is in our life. This is what it means to live a life of wisdom that is worthy of the gift that we have been given. If you're here this morning and you're not sure who that Savior is, we would love to talk with you about that after this service. We'll be down here in the front with you. True wisdom shows us that our good God is the giver of everything good and nothing but good. He is the one who enables us through the wisdom that we ask for 
to live a life that is worthy of that good gift. Would you pray? Father, we are blown away by your generosity, by your kindness, that you would give us such a gift. You are a merciful God, Lord, to give us this wisdom that we lack on our own, but that we need so desperately. I pray for my friends here this morning, and I pray for me. I pray, Lord, that we would be people who live according to the wisdom that you give. That as we think about our status or our station in life, Lord, that we would recognize that all we have to boast about ultimately is to boast that we know and understand you. That as we think about the struggles we face, Lord, that you are using those struggles to do a beautiful work if we will only endure. And I pray, Lord, that we would have an accurate picture of who you are, that you are the giver of every good gift, our perfect Savior, our gracious God. And we pray this all in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.